Native to Key West, Florida, young Willie Benson ran across its waterways and fishing holes with his hair on fire. He caught big and plenty. He matured, mellowed, and started to share his remarkable stories through his videos produced by his company, World Angling. He refined permit fishing, won tournaments, and then he put his crosshairs on conservation and the damage done by cruise ships in Key West Harbor. Will now has found his voice and most valuable direction in life. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Here we are on the cusp of another big storm on Sugarloaf Key at Willie Benson's house. Yeah, 2020. She just doesn't give up, does she? <laughs> no. Do you go by Willie or Will? That's a really good question. Um, a lot of people that know me now call me Will. Um, you've known about me for probably a long time right. and uh, probably from some of the people that called me Willie back in the day when I was cleaning boats in Sugarloaf Marina. Is it because you were just younger? You were Willie? Being yeah, I was at, just Willie age? when I was a kid. And so I think the people that know me or, uh, you know, the, 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 the part of me that harks back to the Sugarloaf Marina cleaning Timmy Carlisle's boat and, you know, some of those old guides there, uh, I'm still Willie. And so it's kind of a soft spot in, in my heart to to be called Willie. Yeah, a little, a little bit, certain, but it's nice guys. to be, have both, you know, right. um, to be professional Will. Uh, and then some of my real close clients and friends and, you know, uh, especially around Sugarloaf Marina, the, the guys just call me Willie, even to this day. You may know? I call you Willie? <laughs> you may. <laughs> All right, Willie. Yeah, I think you have, you know, since we met. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's what I knew you as because I started coming to Sugarloaf Marina with Harry Spear 35 years ago. Right. Uh, and I'd see you around and, you know, in parting and when you were with uh, Hell's Bay, we were around, but never really spending, you know, a concentrated amount of time. But, you know, with that being said, thank you so much for allowing us to come here. It's such you know? a it's such a pleasure to have uh, you guys here. You know, this is uh, looking forward to it yeah. for a long time. So we're in the treehouse. Tell me about this, your home here. Yeah, this is the treehouse. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> as I've always it's... heard. Willie lives in the treehouse. I do. I do. I, I bought this house. Oh. 18 years ago or something like that and when i first moved in there was uh there were no windows uh there was no air conditioning there was no insulation uh there was just screen shutters with you know uh with big wood shutters that we'd have to close during a rainstorm or something like that and uh 
it was a fish camp, you know, a, a, a treehouse fish camp that, you know, was a great bachelor's spot. And then, uh, I met my, my future wife and she kind of put her foot down when, after we got married, we and, need windows and, and air and conditioning. Alice was on the way. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to, uh, you know, do a little renovation around here for, for our first child, Alice. And it was, it was really cool. Um, this house, I'll just quickly tell the story. Uh, an old hippie named Jim Hash, who used to run a limousine service in Washington, D.C., uh, which you can read into what <laughs> what that business really was. <laughs> Jim Hash. <laughs> uh, he bought this property in the mid-70s, and he moved down here for a couple of years with his crazy hippie girlfriend. And they uh, had acquired a couple of shipping containers, old wooden, wooden shipping containers from the Pacific Northwest. And they brought it down here, and they, they disassembled the shipping containers and literally bent the nails back into the straight positions and reused all the, that reclaimed wood to build this house. So wow. this house is constructed from shipping containers that were used to ship goods all around the world. So this house has been around the, the globe, uh, right. you know, quite literally. It feels like a sailboat sometimes when we're in here and the wind's blowing and it's moving and shaking and creaking. Uh, so it's got a lot of character to it. Uh, a lot of love in it and uh, a lot of history in these boards. I mean, the, the, the wood that we're looking at is probably 200 years old. Wow. You know, really old, you know, Pacific yellow pine. But the termites don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's But it's so perfect for you because I see you as really a free spirit. I know your, your parents took your family to, to France for a while. You know, to give you a bit different perspective of Europe and a different look than what you had seen here in this country. They did. They, my dad walked into dinner one night and said, hey, uh, you guys want to move to France? And my brother and I were like, where the hell is that? <laughs> and so so you grew up in Key West? There. Yeah, I was born in Key West, in Stock Island, actually. And so when did yes. you go to France? Uh, when I was uh, nine years old. So it was uh, 1989. Um, and I remember watching the, uh, the Iraq war on, uh, uh you know, the, when, sure. we, with the, when we in Baghdad in, in bag or not in Baghdad. Well, we, when we went in and, and got, you know, took care of, or, you know, reclaimed Kuwait and liberated right. Kuwait, that, all of that, I remember watching on this really grainy television that we had in France that we, you know, it wasn't a real TV. We would watch it only for really important things. And right. I remember when that was going on, the Berlin wall came down. Sure. It was a really monumental time. And we happened to be in Europe and, uh, living in the middle of rural countryside France and uh, just near Bordeaux uh, in the Dordogne region where they hunt for uh, truffles with pigs. Right, right. Uh, we found truffles with pigs and sep mushrooms. And dad did a variety of businesses of selling vacuum cleaners, chocolate chip cookies, worked in a mushroom factory. I mean, we we did some pretty eclectic stuff, but uh, we all, he also documented it and wrote for Gourmet Magazine. So our, our family story uh, was published in, in gourmet magazine wow. years ago, but it was a wonderful time. We grew up on tractors. We had a, we, we bought a farm, we rebuilt an old, uh, you know, farmhouse there, uh, while we were there. So a lot of manual labor, a lot of farm labor as a 10 year old kid, so I was cool. driving a tractor around, you know, uh, hunting, you know, walking around the Hills, my first exposure to skiing, my first exposure to playing ice hockey. Uh, so it was a really wonderful experience. And by the time we came back, I, I hardly knew how to speak. Uh, English anymore you know it's, it's all French do you still speak French I do I do it's it's not as easy to remember right. uh, you know but it comes back with a with a bottle of wine and <laughs> oh, cool are you inspired to take your young family to to France yeah and do so the my, same? my wife's Australian uh and our kids have been uh to Australia I think Alice has been seven times and she's eight years old wow she's been across the Pacific uh to Australia seven times 
Uh, so we've spent a lot of time in airplanes and international airports already in their young age. So absolutely, you know, they, they, we love travel, you know, international. I think we're an international family. It's, you know, you get to go occasionally on fishing trips and whatnot. But yeah, right. 100%, you know, I want them to, to see the world. Outside of the keys. Right. So, sure. so take me back. Was your dad a big fisherman? How'd you get into, into fly fishing? Uh, my dad was not a big fisherman. Uh, I don't think he really knew anything about fishing, <laughs> uh, to be honest. Um, and so I got into fishing when we came back from France. We were fiddle farting around uh, in the summertime. And, you know, my parents put their foot down and said, you guys just can't be hanging around the house with nothing to do. So you have to pick a hobby. And so my brother picked like baseball card collecting, you know, <laughs> and I thought about it. It's a, like, yeah, yes, a hobby. It's a hobby. All right, yeah. whatever, Jolly. <laughs> and uh, I thought about it and I was like, man, well, I, I bet I can get out of the house and get away from my parents if I had a boat, you know. And so maybe what's what's the thing you do to get a boat? Oh, shit, I, I pick fishing, you know. And so it was just out of wanting to have some freedom. I didn't even like fishing or care about fishing. Uh, I just wanted to get the hell out of the house. And uh, if I chose fishing, that meant I could, you know, work towards getting a boat, you know, getting outboard that my parents said, if you, you know, we'll match you. So if you save up 400 bucks to get an outboard, uh, we'll match it so you can get an $800 outboard. And so it took a little, you know, a month. I did a lot of right. chores and all that stuff. For we you. saved up $400 and, and found a little outboard for 800 bucks and, you know, put a first little, you know, tinny boat together, a little aluminum boat. And I was immediately up to the marina and met Tim Carlisle and yeah. Cliff Carlisle and, you know, Steve Gray, Dan, you know, Key, all those those old time legends uh, that were up there. And I just fell in love with it. Do you remember the first time you pushed off from the dock with your new boat? I don't. Well, the first time I would have ever pushed off the boat, I did actually build a boat with my father. We were building a, a part of the, the old house, which is actually right next to my parents built that house right next to, to us. And that's my childhood house that I grew up in. And we were building part of the house and we used some three quarter inch plywood, some PT plywood and built a little boat. Uh, and I used to get in that boat with a cinder block as an anchor and I'd go paddle out to the end of the, the canal and, and I could go that far, but I couldn't leave the site of the house because my mom could be in the kitchen. She could look down the canal. Oh, how cool. And if she could see me, you know, then I was okay and I was safe and I was allowed to go that far. Uh, and I think, you know, that was when I was seven or something like that. And I just remember sitting out there for hours, you know, I'd be out there and just, just, you know, messing around, jumping in and out of the boat, rearranging my playing. anchor, just playing at the end of the canal, you know, as far as I could get away from the house, you know, always at right. the, at the, the limit, at the edge. And <laughs> Did you ever think what's out there and you look at the horizon? I still think that. I think that's, that's my driving thought. Yeah. You know, it's interesting <laughs> because when I was first fishing with Harry, like 35 years ago, Harry Spear, he said when we were running back towards Isla Mirada, he said, I remember when I was younger and I look at the Petersons and I used to think, what's out there right what what's what what's out there the unknown yeah that, and i think that's the that's the curiosity that really drives you or anybody to really become a great fisherman because you're looking for newness and 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 to get away and to go over further and, and that can be away. a geographic right you know or uh intellectual for sure absolutely it's it's that quest to discover the unknown to learn more you know, and what right. you realize is you guys know that the more you encounter and the more you discover and the further you push that, the more you realize there's so much more to, to figure out and so much more to learn. For sure. Well, uh, I so admire you because 
your life has got a, such a great spectrum, starting with your family in this treehouse and growing up in Key West and going to France, obviously, as a young child. But now as a grown man, you became a great fisherman. You became a great, your film work is outstanding with world angling. And then you became a conservationist, but then you really jumped into it big time. And tell me about this big new referendum that you guys just won, because I saw your film, Silver Lining, talking about what these cruise ships are doing to Key West. What is it doing to the coral base and what's happening with all these people uh, and the inundation of thousands in Key West and what it's doing to the fishery? Yeah, those are all really great questions. And I think I just have always approached this stuff. I I can't shake it. Uh, I love this place. I love these fish. I love this territory. Right. And it's, you know, I have some historical perspective. I remember when Turkey Basin had, you know, sea fans and I grew up on those coral heads inside of Mallory, inside of Marvin. Some of them don't even exist anymore, you know? And so I've, I've kind of felt a little pain over the years watching, you know, what's happened down here. And I've, you know, I guess decided to do something about it. You know, it's, I want it to be better for my children. I don't know how to get there or what to do, but you, you take one step and then you take another one. And, you know, in 2013, they were proposing to dredge the harbor of Key West and make it bigger, uh, not necessarily deeper. They just want to make it wider so they could fit these Panamax giant ships in here. And they were ready to put the city into, you know, uh, into debt to 35, 40 million dollars. Uh, and I just thought it was unconscionable and right. I couldn't handle it. So how uh, did you fight that? And you're, and your I just, brother's a big part of this. My brother's, movement. yeah, my brother's my 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 partner in, in in these activities. I don't even know why. I mean, we fought so much as kids. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we got good at fighting. Well, you know? we all grew up. And we know? all grew up, and uh, yeah, Jolly's uh, he's a he's a piece of work. I love him, you know. And uh, I think I I I the way I fought that in 2013 is I sat behind the computer. I remember the night that it happened. That that whole silver lining, I pieced that thing together in four hours. It just, wow. it just came out of me. The writing was great. Everything. Everything was perfect. Just, you have a helicopter shooting it, these everything. big I, ass, stupid ass cruise ships. Yeah. And, and the, it just poured out of my soul. I don't know how to explain it better than that. It just kind of like, it was inside me and it just had to come out and it was its own animal. It was in and, there for years. Yeah. And it just came out. And I think that, you know, was a catalyst that this, that, that I needed and that my brother needed and people watched and, and it just kind of fired the whole thing up and and my brother decided to take that torch uh that i had lit with the refer you know with the they actually had a referendum back then to to go into debt and to explore this dredging thing and he fought it and he stayed on environmental message uh and we worked at it together and that was our first you know political victory down here in key west with regards to the cruise ships and we pushed back the the big ships weren't going to come in they didn't dredge the national marine sanctuary and the corals that the palolo worms live in right. and everything like that we really uh we thought it was a big win for us at the time and then you know this 2020 hit and the coronavirus pandemic and everything else and that we just started to look at it and say you know this is it, since 2013, it had just been more and more and more cruise ships, bigger ones, bigger ones. And you know, we've watched what's happened to those fish down there. We're watching what's happening to the to the snapper grouper populations, to the stone crabs, to the lobsters and the rest of it. And, you know, it, it's so obvious to us uh, that, that that was an issue. But beyond that, it's also 
you know, just a, a good business, you know, we're, we, the, the coronavirus and the, you know, super spreader, you know, status of those cruise ships, sure. you know, uh, guys are calling me and saying, Hey, you know, uh, are we going to go fishing? Cause I don't want to come down into Key West if they're bringing cruise ships in there, you know? So it's clear that there was, a, there was multiple parts to this. There's sure. an environmental component, there's a health safety component. And then there's just the quality of life of, you know, being down in Duval street or down in, in Key West and having 10,000 people on the street. And the citizens here had, had really been uncomfortable with that for a long time for all of those reasons, but nobody had stepped up and done anything about it. And so we just said, you know, um, this is the time to pivot. I don't want to take anybody's jobs away or anything like that, but when cruising was stopped and it was halted and it became clear that this pandemic was going to last for a long time, and that our economy down here was going to transition in one way or another, we thought it was the most responsible time to introduce these referenda uh, at that point because it was really the time that we should all be transitioning and pivoting. Um, and so we put three referenda on the ballot to limit the size uh, and the capacity uh, and the disembarkation numbers in right. Key West and then to give environmental and health safety preference to the cruise lines uh, and cruise ships with the best records. So those three items went on the ballot. Uh, we were strong in saying we wanted these to go on the ballot in the presidential election. We're going to get the highest voter turnout. We're going to get the most accurate Democratic representation of where our city and our citizens stand. Uh, we were adamant about that. We we didn't want to move on this. If the citizens didn't want to do it, we, we didn't want to do it. But we felt that they did. And we we were right. We won a very good victory. Uh, by a pretty good margin, especially on the environmental stuff. I mean, that's we came in at eighty-one percent. I mean, that's that's awesome. That's a mandate. Now, that's it, a big mandate. Would that stick now? Does is that everlasting? Well, we have you know work to be done, Andy. Yeah. Uh, you know these things are complicated. As I'm learning, there's you know they could uh, usurp it in Tallahassee with the legislative effort. There's you know all the lawsuits. There's all different ways that this this can go. But the voters have spoken. And I think it shows clearly that this community cares about its it's about the community, about its quality of life, about the environment. I mean, this is who we are right. down here is attached to the ocean. It's why the people come here. It's the basis for our tourist economy. And we need to do everything we can to shepherd and protect that, you know. Uh, and that's I think as I've grown older as a guide and seen that and I think I've I've decided to, you know, try to do what I can to you know, get other fishing guides and anglers organized to, uh, you know, take on some of these issues. Because if we don't, the things that you it's, and I love, gone. right? Yeah. All this, I just can't sit back and watch it. You know, I, I, I got to do something about it. And I don't know. Good for you. Yeah, you know, It's, it's got to be one of the biggest victories of your career. Yeah. I mean, these things are always hard though. You know, it's emotional when you go through these and you put yourself out there and you see the hate, you know, there's other people on the other side that, you know, feel differently and they're strong about it. And then, you know, people on our side, it, it takes, it takes courage to, to raise these issues, you know, to fight for them. And it to, takes effort, takes effort. Yeah. And I think it also takes empathy, right? At the end of the day, when you win, it's not time to, thump your chest it's time to turn and say hey how can we all come back together and how can we work on all of this together you know and bring the other side into the conversation and that takes i, I just think a lot of strength and in, in leadership something that's new to me 
but I'm learning and I'm really, really proud of our guides association down here. The leaders, Doug Kilpatrick, you know, Andrew Tipler, John O'Hearn, I mean, Bob Paulson, the guys that have been a part of this organization. I think that we're, uh, we're doing a fantastic job down here and I'm really excited to, to watch the new guys coming in. We have some really fantastic, talented guys, uh, talented fishermen who are taking up that leadership torch. And uh, I'm just really excited and I feel that we're blessed to have this this organization and this group of guys down here who who just love it they care about it and and it's great to see well anyone who knows your name they think of Key West and permit so how's the how's the permit fishery in Key West currently it's hurting you know I think it's still one of the great places to come fly fish for permit um it's a domestic location you can fly in the the quality of guiding is outstanding i mean right. you know whether you book you know one of the hottest guides in my opinion is brandon sear you know he's on it down there fishing hard or you know you go with dale perez you know who both sides of the age spectrum there you know the the experience level that you're going to get with the youngest or the oldest or anywhere in between is is second to none this is the best place to learn how to fly fish period whether it's tarpon bonefish or permit but Permit being, in my opinion, the hardest fish, uh, I think that having a great educator, a great coach, a great guide is going to be the single thing that's going to make the biggest difference. And I think we have the best in the world down here. Right. And so I, for that regard, you know, for that reason, I think that this is a wonderful place to, to come fly fishing for permit. We still have reason, you know, good numbers of fish, but you know, when I grew up and you saw it, I mean, we were, right. I didn't permit fish for singles, man. I fished for schools, you know, there was a school at Key, it's, so I don't give away Timmy's spot here. <laughs> I'll edit that out. <laughs> Sorry, Timmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it. It was like it's like ten thousand fish in that channel. All of them forty pounds. You know, just spectacular. And and you know, I could go a year, two years, never even see a forty pounder. Now they're all these like you know smaller, right. almost sexually mature fish. Maybe just they had one spawning. You know, and then they we just don't see them. We don't see the big ones any anymore and that's concerning we don't see the the numbers of them on the flats you know it's it's uh it's it's shifting and it's you know i'm, I'm concerned about it how much uh are we losging to sharks in the western dry rocks where they spawn i listen that's I'm, a big contention i'm not thing. a scientist and and i know that i've gotten hate mail and dead, I, look dead i got, dead, I got dead, dead permit yeah, put well, on my kids swing you know this is the kind of you know t- that's, that's a war this between is the heat. The, that's the, the, a war between the flats guys and the offshore guys. I don't know if it's a war. I, I certainly don't want it to be a war. I think it's, that a, fi- it's a fight for a fishery. Think, yeah, there, it might be a fight for. Yes, I, I guess we see it one way, and they may see it differently. Correct. I do not spend enough time on Western dry rocks to answer that question. Uh, I'm not, and I'm not gonna because I don't. I'm not out there. I know that what the science says. Right. And uh, I'm inclined to believe that uh, because. It's clear, and it was done ob- objectively without prejudice. And I think that there's reasons to be concerned. Uh, there's obviously shark depredation that occurs with a lot of species that's concerning down here, and it's something that we need to work with. The the actual issue of a spawning site at Western Drive, multi-species, by the way, this is grouper, snapper, permit, you know, all kinds of fish that, that yellowtail, mangrove snapper that all spawn on this site and right. you know i just think that that's a well that can continue to feed this i remember you know guys talk about back in the day when mutton snappers would be on the flats you know and you could fish for tailing mutton snappers well what happened to that you know where why can't we have that why can't we get that back you know 
and I, I would ask that, you know, worked and I know the light tackle community. Well, I, I, I love some of the guys who may, you know, really disagree with me. You know, yeah. I've known these guys since I was a kid, you know, and I have a lot of respect for where they're coming from and I'm willing to listen. We may feel differently about a lot of these things or this particular thing, but I feel strongly that, uh, if we do the right thing, and we can get together ultimately um there's going to be more groupers more snappers more permit and it's going to be better business for all of us you know i think that um your finest hour is your hour you're living now with conservation and now with the maturity of will versus willie people are willing to listen you have weight uh, with the referendum with the cruise ships and everybody's starting to take a closer look at what you're saying and I think what's really important is when people monitor the resource, the wildlife and the fisheries, we should, we should act on behalf of the fishery and on behalf of the wildlife and not on behalf of the f- people that are chasing these animals and fish. So in my perspective, for, I mean, I have no voice down here, but as a, as a, uh, sure you do Andy. Well, I just see like a, a classic example when I have been up in Boca Grande, I see all these tarpon that are being hooked and killed by sharks. They're eating them every day. Why is that not a sanctuary? People could go find tarpon elsewhere. I see what's happening in Bahia Honda in certain areas down here when during the worm hatch, you got 60 boats on top of these fish. And I think these fish need these worms for some sort of protein or whatever, because the spawn is right during that, that period. You know, why not leave these fish alone for that one week? Not the whole year, but just certain areas for a certain small period of time to protect the resource and give these animals a chance to do what they really need to be doing. Well, I think you raise really important issues and I don't have the answers to those. And I don't think science has the answers to those yet. So let's just back up for a second and think about, okay, like if, if we want to do these big things that, that we all kind of see, we got to start somewhere. Right. And so I think organizing, getting people together in a room and, and having good quality discussions, you know, what do you think? And and what do I think? And listening very carefully and building trust is the starting point. And I'm seeing that in the guides association. I'm seeing that with the national Marine sanctuary and with the FWC officials starting to listen to some of the expertise of, you know, guides, anglers like yourself, biologists, uh, biologists, scientists, but fishermen sitting with biologists, right? And, and actively participating. Look, one of the greatest things is this BTT acoustic tagging program that we've done, right? Like you can have every idea that you want. You may or may not be right, right? But we, we've gone out and we've captured these tarpon. I did one with Aaron Adams. It's a great story. Uh, yeah, we caught this fish and in Seaplane Basin. And it was in April. Nice big fish, like 110-pound fish or something like that. Brought it up. And I am i don't usually land tarpon, but for science, I'll land a tarpon. So I, I brought the fish up to the boat uh, and we, you know, inserted a tag, an acoustic tag into it. And sure enough, this fish, you know, went as far up as Georgia uh, and it came right back the following year back in Seaplane. And we got to see, there's no question about it. Like right. this is what happens. This is where they go. This is where they go. Right. This is not who a these, guess. This yes. isn't a guess anymore. Yeah. And, and, you know, after time, when you do enough of that, it begins to paint a very clear picture of what's going on. And then, you know, I think if you can get fishermen to, to look at that and understand how science is done, what the, the results mean, and therefore stand behind some sort of regulatory action, 
you know, that's the, the process. It's the first step. That's the, those are the first steps attraction. And when we can right. get there, then we can start looking at other areas. Oh, I think there's a problem here or there. Well, you know, great, but Hey, science may come back and make, there's no problem. You know, it's not, it's, it's actually not what you think it is. It's something else. We've learned some really cool stuff. Like just for a second with the spawning stuff, um, like the most critical thing down here are the loggerhead sponges because the loggerhead sponges have a certain type of snapping shrimp that snap and emit an acoustic kind of, you know, sound out there that attracts, you know, post larval juvenile lobsters, stone crabs, fish of every sort. And that the snapping, the clicking sound, right, is what is the catalyst for all of it. And it's dependent on the loggerhead sponge. Hmm. And, and so when you remove those. Right. And so so if we, oh, we think we have this problem. Your problem isn't with the the hogfish, right? It's right. with the snapping shrimp because the, the larvae is not settling where it needs to. And so the science is so capable of diving into those those details and answering some of those questions that uh, I just think we, we got to do more science. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, we got to look w- very critically at ourselves, at you know, the, this process and, 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 and work really hard to find, you know, the solutions and try to do it in a way that's, you know, uh, brings people together and doesn't divide them. And right. I understand it's that change is hard. It's hard to have these conversations. There's a lot of emotions on it, but again, uh, leadership, I go, I look at guys like Doug, you know, and, uh, and John O'Hearn, Bobby Paulson, you know, these guys, you know, have been part of the leadership down here. Uh, Steve Friedman and, and Isla Murata, um, and even, you know, Flip and Chico and all, you know, uh, Sandy Moret being, I mean, For your sure. podcast with Sandy was, it, it touched my heart. I mean, that, that guy's, yeah. that guy's awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think building that leadership and building those kind of values and bringing new guides who are just starting out and saying, Hey, you know, it's not just go out and catch as many fish as you can. It's like, you know, get involved you know, stand up for something to go to the meetings, like work with us on that stuff. I think if we can continue to do that, there's an, there's a bright future for there's us a, here. Hope. Yeah. Well, you were talking about numbers and hard science and gathering Intel. Is it, is it true or not true that these fish that spawn on Western dry rocks are the flats species of permit and not the Gulf offshore species? Isn't there two different species in the, the permit that spawn on Western dry rocks are the or the permit that you see on the flats? The, the science that we've done with the methodology that we employed indicates pretty strongly and, and very clearly that that's the case, that there are two subspecies of, of permit or two, you know, genres. Right. <laughs> I don't even know scientifically what you call it, but basically two groups of fish. Um, you know, you can, you think, think about like the jocks and the nerds, you know, like <laughs> in the playground, like, well, the jocks all go to Western dry rocks, you know, and the nerds go over to the, to the wreck off of a, uh, you know, the gunvore wreck off or whatever they're going to go right. and spawn. Right. But it's, there are like two classes of fish that go to different areas. And what we've noticed is a very high fidelity, uh, between the fish that are spawning at Western dry rocks and the flats where they are feeding. So we believe that the flats specifically from, you know, like Johnson key, Barracuda key, all the way out to the Marquesas, including the ocean side of Key West, all travel and migrate to Western dry rocks to spawn at certain times of the year. So, you know, pressure at that site uh, is, you know, really affecting the fish that are are being fished for by a different group of people, the flats fishermen sure. versus the offshore. They're, they're being, you know, pressured the flats. So, so the decline of your fishery, you say it's 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 dropped a little bit. You think, I mean, unlike the big bonefish in Isla Mirada, that was a, 
that was a certain fish that just kind of went away. It might have been a different DNA. The cold front really whacked those fish, and they're just not around anymore. You think we're losing a lot of our permit to commercial fishermen? I don't think, no, not commercial okay, fishermen. Because the netters were banned. The netter, it's not that commercial fishermen. It's just sport I, fishermen. Uh, and or light I, tackle. I think that, yeah, possibly, yes, I think that there's shark predation occurring there. Right. I think that 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 place during the spawn, mutton snappers, groupers, permit, the rest of it, it's that the amount of boats and pressure that's out there, it's just unsustainable. Right. You know, we got to let these fish spawn and, right. and listen, man, I'm fighting as much for the, the groupers as the permit. It's not fair, you know, just cause I'm a flats guide and I care about, you know, my livelihood is chasing, you know, permit. Right. Um, there's a bigger philosophical ethical question here. And I stand firmly behind, like if we let them spawn the snappers, the groupers, the rest, and we don't pressure them. And listen, you put 60 boats on top of a very small area that has mutton snappers spawning, groupers spawning, permit spawning all at the same time. And you're power chumming it, right? You're going to, you're, you're creating a feeding frenzy. Mm-hmm. You're bringing and training sharks to come to that area. So it makes the shark's job a lot easier. And then beyond that, just think about the stress hormones that these fish have, you know, and what that does to the reproductive cycle. You're just not going to have a successful spawn when you're totally stressed out. Getting you know, you, yeah, 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 I mean, think day. about your own bedroom, you know, sure. <laughs> like, do you want to, you know, get frisky when there's, you know, somebody, you know, stomping around outside or knocking at the door, right. you know, it's, it's the same way. It's just, right. these fish are stressed out. We got to, we got to reduce the pressure on that critical spot. And I think, I believe it's going to pay dividends right. for us. And I, listen, I like, like eating fish. I don't have any problem with, with killing fish, you know, if it's appropriate for the right reasons and it's done with, you know, with the right limits that are science backed. I have no problem with people coming to the Florida Keys, hiring a guide, going out and catching fish to eat. I like to eat fish. My kids love, you know, snappers and yellow jacks and stuff that we go out and catch here on the flat. So it's not about that. It's about the ethical question of how do we, how do we make it better and preserve it? You know, right. and, and science points clearly that this is a very, very important spot that that needs protection. But we got to also at the same time think a little bit outside the box. Right. And this is my challenge to the federal government here. Their playbook of, you know, let's just close it and leave it alone. Doesn't work. Right. Right. It's it may work in certain instances right? Riley's hump south of the Tortugas was closed. Yeah. The, the mutton snapper fishing is getting better. Red snappers are back groupers. I mean, this is a, this ex, the, the science is, is correct. It's been a success. Uh, it's a model that we can move on, but you can't ask guys to just constantly, you know, be okay with closing everything. They've closed most of the reef to the, the my offshore buddies. There's closures everywhere, you know, for these guys. And what has, what have we done? We haven't, you know, they're just being told, you know, you can't go there more and more and they're not opening it back up. So we need to think outside the box. We need to start looking at, you know, habitat restoration, habitat mitigation, artificial reefing. How can we take the resources of our industry, the angling community, uh, matched with federal dollars for infrastructure, you know, support for infrastructure growth uh, and build on that to get hands on with this environment? again with science leading the way how can we buy you know enviro engineer this place to create you know fishing spots for guys if we're asking them to give something up 
We have to give them. We got to give them something. Right. And for so long that we've been told no, no, no. And so, you know, I'm going to try to do whatever I can to change that dynamic. You know, I think if we got, you know, there's a a program rigs to reef, you know, we got some oil infrastructure stuff out of Louisiana. We scrub it, we clean it and we put it in 300, 400 feet of, of water south of the Marquesas. And we're talking about something that's hundreds of yards long superstructure. You're going to create the best fishing spot on the planet. Right. You know, Al Al Fluger did that. The Fluger Reef up there outside of Miami. They've got a reef that's a mile long. Right. uh, And I don't know how many yards wide, but they brought in all these barges and sank them. Right. And look, I'm working with Joe Weatherby down here, who's a character. Uh, I love Joe. I've got to know him on the SAC Council. He sank the Vandenberg. Uh, There's, we can do this. Right. We can do this. And if the offshore guys and, and some of the guys who stand, you know, adamantly against the closure at Western Dry Rocks, I get it. I feel it, you know, but, but I, and if, if that gets regulated and closed seasonally, you can bet your ass. The first thing I'm going to do is I want to turn around and offer the sanctuary proposal to put other fishing spots in place so that these guys have places to go. And I think we can use that model to influence to to well to make this place better to make it better for our clients to catch more fish to follow science and ultimately um you know be better business more more sustainable economy more resilient economy Mm -hmm. you know we we got it but we got to start now and we got to get over the you know putting dead fish on people's property and start talking and, and thinking clearly about the science and working together instead of better instead of arguing that's one of the pet peeves I have about our industry, I think, uh, at times it can get a bit of, a little bit of like, oh, well, this is my fishing spot or, right. you know, this is my right. You know, look, I'm a conch. I was born here. I have no right to the fish. Sur- Sugarloaf Beach the fish more than anybody else. Right? right. Exactly. The fish don't have a right. I mean, right. come on. Yeah. You know, we got to We got to We got to get over this sometimes at times, this pettiness and, and start thinking about the big picture. Right. Let's go to a fun place. Yeah, please. Go to a fun place. Take my, but I really appreciate you know your your point of view and your thoughts and the success that you've had. Um, because if you go to the book Mile Marker Zero, you know when you had Jim Harrison and Tom McGuane and in Bronigan, um, Jimmy Buffett, they were all down here. Uh, Guy uh, Valdine and they did the movie Tarpon. They all left because Key West was changing. And now you see the cruise ships and what they're doing. I get it. And thanks thanks to you and, and your efforts and your brother and all the other people involved. Arlo you know. and Evan, our, our childhood friends. That This is what we all played baseball yeah. together. The four of us, we did this referendum. Right. I'm super proud of it. Success yeah. to you guys. I mean, huge kudos. Let's get back to the early. I want to make one other point, though, Andy, before we leave this. And and I agree. Let's talk about some actual fish, man, because right. that's what I love. Um you know, I, I look a little bit jealously at guys like Steve Huff and, you know, some of the early Dale Perez and the guys that were Tom Evans that were exploring, you know, these these fisheries and finding stuff. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I would have loved to have had that. And I kind of had a little bit of that in my childhood. But where these guys found it and discovered it and built this industry, you know, they've done a, such a great job. But it's now, I believe, our generational challenge to protect it. Right. You know, they got to find it and now we get to protect it. And it is what it is, but for anybody that's out there in the industry, if you're not thinking about that, you know, think about, you know, how much longer do we have and what are we going to leave for our kids? You know, and I think 
fishing is one of the greatest industries. It's sustainable. We can, you know, it is big bucks. It's a great engine for our economy here in the state of Florida, but specifically in the Keys. It's something worthy of our best effort. And so, you know, let's let's put all these differences aside and let's get to work on on, you know, guaranteeing that that these great places that Steve Huff and some of the legends discovered that my kids, Luke and Alice, are still fly fishing there. Nikki, if you have kids at some point, you know that they're in the bowling alley, that they're in these places looking at these same magnificent critters that we love. That's the only thing that really matters to me. Yeah. Good for you. Here, here. Talk to me about your early years down here. Now, obviously, you're a tarpon guy. You catch bonefish and permit. You've won four permit tournaments, you know. So as a young kid, you probably saw and heard of Del Brown and Steve Huff innovating the sport, catching these, you know, learning how to catch these permit. And then down the road, when you got a little older, you got successful you start catching all these permit. How many have you caught now for your clients? 200, 300 fish? I have where, no idea. Where are you at? I know that you were way up or close to 300 or whatever. So it became a really close to your heart. Yeah, I don't I don't, and, I don't, don't keep numbers on permit. Uh, it's it's weird. Uh, I've never have. I have no idea how many I've caught. And I have no idea how many I've got. so many to. people have. But anyway, your name is on the yeah, Del right. Brown. The Del that, Brown I know how many tour. tournaments I got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What did that mean to you to, to end up winning this permit tournament with such... Um, a great heritage um in the namesake well, i was just listen you know you talk about like that book outliers right of just the circumstances and i feel that living on sugarloaf key growing up cleaning boats uh, on at sugarloaf marine i was just lucky pure and simple i mean let's let's cut to the chase i was right. just a lucky kid to grow up there and i saw something and fell in love with it and you know used to go out and hunt wading you know, tail and bonefish in the back country with shrimp in my pocket. And, you know, I'd come back and they'd go through the wash and my mom would be so furious. <laughs> <laughs> you, you left shrimp in your pocket again. And now you have a two critters. Oh, I can't, that oh, I'm really not looking forward to the day that Luke brings shrimp back in his pocket and my wife goes through it. <laughs> That's going to be, <laughs> you can take Luke and go back out. Uh, I'll the smile, but run. I don't think she will, you know, but I was, you know, just, grew up with idolizing these guys you know timmy carlisle was like my freaking hero you know jeffrey carden is my you know one of my heroes jose wahebe flip you know all these guys i was so lucky to grow up in that golden era where things were exploding after a river runs through it and i was just a kid soaking it all up you know and and i think that you know i just challenged myself to to get good and to explore and to try to figure it out and um and I've always loved kind of going the opposite direction or the opposite grain. So it was always nice when I'd read something in Lefty Craze Fishing the Flats with Mark Sosin, or I'd read, you know, Stu App's book or whatever, and I read them all. And it would say, oh, this is how you do it, and this is what's up. And then I'd find some other way to do it that right. was better. Right. <laughs> and I lived for well, that. Well, they were, they were older. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the innovations today are right. so profound. And I think that, you know, when it got to permit – that was like, that was to me was, was just, I, I think about what was going on in my head when I first started to say, all right, I want to get good at permit. You know, this is, this is a fish that's sexy. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's incredibly difficult. People have had limited success and I, and I refuse to accept that. So I'm going to just look at it and challenge myself to do it differently or to try to figure it out. And once I started breaking it down and, you know, getting a lot 
better at catching these, I found myself doing things that were radically different than, than anything that I had ever read. And what was that first just difference from where you fish them, when you fish them, how you throw to them, what angle you're taking on them, what retrieve you're using, the style of fly that you're using, every single thing that I was doing uh, leading up to the first win that I had, I think down here was in 180 degrees difference than everything I'd ever read. Is fly design a very important factor? Not as much as people think. You can get them to eat anything. You know. It's so what's the key to getting them to eat? Um, uh, I'm reluctant. <laughs> um, we, I just had this conversation recently with Tim Mahaffey about big downtown bonefish, and he's won as uh, not the most, but he's won all the big bonefish tournaments, and and yeah. his methodology was so different than anyone else's. I think there's there's a approach. Um, I would say it's a combination of things, right? Like everything it's, there's no one answer. Right. right. Uh, but I would say that there's a few things first of which is, um, you know, permit are real, real smart. They learn they're conditioned animals. So if you're fishing to the same fish that you fished for three days in a row, you're not going to catch them. Stop going to the spot that you see them all the time. Start finding out where fresh they, fish, yeah, yeah, you got to do that. That's straight up you know, and, and just, so that, and then taking fundamentally different approaches. I see a lot of guides pulling real hard on these fish, pushing hard, pushing water pushes. You know, I am so thankful to Steve Huff and Dell for developing uh, a sport that I love. That's paid my mortgage. That's made a great life for me, but I do take, uh, uh, issue with his statement of saying that it's, you know, the permit's you know, not a fair fish, you know, it doesn't play fairly. And I, I would challenge anybody that's kind of bought into that, uh, to say, you know, is it, is it the fish or is it me? Cause I think if you turn around and say, well, you know, it's not fair. Well, have you been there for the last, you know, week on the same tide is the fish exhibiting feeding behavior? You know, what's going on? Are you really fishing for that fish ex at the exact moment when he's most likely, or she is most likely to eat the fly? I think if you start peeling back the layers a little bit, you'll see that there's a the, the permit's a far more complex animal and that it requires an enormous uh, amount of attention to detail and to thought and to observation to really get inside its head uh, and to, I guess, push back on that statement a little bit. It's totally a fair fish. Well, I so think, if, you, you know, if, you, if you're saying if you get all the details correct and all the stars align, you're going to get a bite out of that permit. catchable. They're totally, they're very, very, very catchable. I don't say, listen, some days they're just hard, you know, but then you get to say, well, look, okay, it's this, this moon in October. There's these kind of conditions, you know, they're doing this, you know, is this week the week to catch them? Maybe not. Maybe they're pre-spawning. Maybe they're doing something else. Maybe they're eating something that you know, is different than what you're throwing. You know, there's a lot of and critters. They're exclusive to that. They're meal. exclusive to this. Right. So you're saying, oh, it's not fair. Well, you're, you're, you know, you're not. They're fair. You're just, you're not just, you're just an idiot. Fairness. Right. You're right. just throwing the wrong thing at them all the time. Right. You know, so get over yourself. Stop thinking that you're right. You know, so yeah. I think permit fishing benefits a mindset that, um, is kind of locked in. It's about numbers. You know, so I hear so many people say, you know, if I get this many shots, 
on this conversion ratio, it'll equal this many fish. And so I'm always kind of adjusting the numbers, right? It's kind of like, you know, how the Red Sox won the the, the World Series back then. It was kind of by the numbers, you know, mm-hmm. Theo Epstein did right. that crunching of the numbers and the data played out, right? right. Uh, that's a very good way to get good at permit fishing, uh, but it is not getting to the, the Holy Grail. There, to really understand that it's about chemistry you got to get inside the fish's head and you need to be flexible you need to be maneuverable you need to be able to come off of that in key strategic ways at the right time to unlock some mysteries that i still think are out there that a lot of people haven't realized what's the mis- the biggest mystery that you're trying to find the code to at this point i think that we have a lot of changes in our habitat and i think if you look at the what they're eating um, they're eating some different things than what we think. But let's so, just say they're eating something that we don't know about, but you present a nice, beautiful crab. Do you think that they're going to stay exclusive to what they're eating? So in some places at some times of the year, yes. They won't eat that crab. They will not. Even though you got a great presentation and a great feed. Correct. What's the greatest new innovation that you know of to make it really successfully or... To be a successful permit fisherman, because Dell and let's face it, Steve did it a long time ago. But now you're seeing a numbers numbers being successfully caught, like with Nathaniel. He's catching a lot of fish. You're catching a lot of fish. The game has changed. Now they're accessible. What made that change? Well, it's across the board. I don't. Is it's it waiting? Not, look, is it, it's the skiff. How how yeah, heavy yeah. is your skiff? Like, right, right. How, I was going to ask you. When do you know the, the your angler should be waiting to these fish versus fishing out of the oh, boat? Oh, you, you look Bes- at you watch water, them, you know. Yeah. And I think you you there's and it's just kind of a gut feel. That that question, you know, I don't know. You got to look at is your angler capable of doing that? Are the right. fish in shallow? Or is it you know how the approach? You know, when's the right time to get out? I think a guy like Nathaniel, who's capable of doing extraordinary things with the fly rod, is obviously able to scale a mountain that most can't. Uh, that is not my day-to-day client. Right. So I have a different game plan, you know, that I have to implement for the majority of my clients, you know, because they're not at a Nathaniel Linville skill set, right? They're not at your skill set, Andy. You know, I mean, these guys. So I have to approach it. And that means I'm not going to the same areas. Right. I'm not throwing the same flies because they might, and the leader length is different. The fly line color is different. Whatever it is that, whatever combination of things that I think is going to be the best for that individual success. Right. I'll try to start with that and then, you know, see where we go and, and build on it and build their confidence. Um, but yes, the big, I mean, it's everything. It's the boat, the man, you know, the way they build them, the push pull. Just think about push pulls. Right. How light are the push pulls that we're using right now? You know, they don't, you know, have fiberglass coming off in your hands. When I first started, I used to have to like every month spray my push pole with lacquer, you know, to, to keep the fiberglass <laughs> out of your, out of yeah, your skin, yeah. out of my skin and itching me. So we've made in the fly rods. I mean, are you kidding me? These things right. are amazing. Sure. You know, the technology that we're, we've, you know, got is, is amazing. I will offer though, that in my opinion, there's one type of technology, which is really detrimental to most fishing guides. Um, and they should stop it. And that's a GPS. Best advice I could give to any guy, just, just turn the GPS off. Because of the electronics? Just stop looking at it. It's a crutch. Start paying attention. Right. You know, I'm based decisions oftentimes. I know it sounds crazy, but like on the way the wind smells. Oh, for sure. You know, oh, this, the water level is 
is different today than what it should be on paper, right? And like, why is that? Oh, it's because it's this kind of a tide cycle with this wind applied to it. Right. And all of a sudden it's, you know, three inches shallower on this particular day where it should be on paper or on the GPS or on whatever you're thinking, oh, it's right. this depth. And I think that if you can just stop looking at that GPS, stop using that crutch and force yourself to kind of like pay attention. And I mean, elk, elk hunting's got to be like the the zen of that, I would imagine. And the very little I've done, and you guys have done a lot more, but like you don't walk out into the in, to go elk hunting and like look at some electronic device. You're no. you're smelling, you're feeling the wind, you're knowing each and every inch of that terrain. You know, you're you're knowing. Oh, if I hunt that animal here on this condition, I have to approach like that. It's the ultimate in that kind of nuance but so you're, you, you're handicapping yourself a little bit totally. you just but totally the, rely but on your gps but how many people use their gps uh to actually fish versus to get to a certain spot but even that he's saying all the above all the above everything right, right. if you want to go lobster diving sure use a gps it's it works real well it's right. awesome and keep a gps on you in case you know, you get blinding weather or whatever. I mean, I have a GPS on my boat, but I can tell you it's rare that I turn it on. Yeah. It's lo- opening lobster season. So this May Dad, no GPS for you. Good luck. If you're driving around in the dark, no, you know, yeah, but look, for sure. I, this, you know, what is Mark, what is Crocod? Is he using a GPS to go no. back there? No. no, but he's got, but what he's done, he's gone out and put big PVC pipes with reflectors and he's, he's, he's built his own highway. That's so he, that's right. But so it's kind of a GPS, but it, it was man-made. It, that's right. But that guy's like one day away from sprouting gills, man. Like we should yeah. all, if you, <laughs> you, you hear our, our podcast with him, I think I've listened to it three times. It's I, insane. It's insane. I love this, that guy. This guy, this guy's an alien. No, oh, he's, he's, he's remarkable. The most, I, I, I really cherish our friendship as much as almost anybody I know. He is so honest and so truthful and so loving and so profane. Yeah. And profane plays a big role, <laughs> right? I, I've known, I don't know Mark well. We occasionally see each other and I always just get the biggest smile. I, I love that man. He's he's full of wisdom and guidance. And when you hear, you know, that story, he's not using GPS, man. I, that's no. even at 20 years in, in this career, like I'm, I'm glomming onto that. Yeah. Like th- that's truth right there. You know, that this, put it down, start really, if you want to be a great hunter, you have to be animalistic. You need to, you know, feel the same thing that they're feeling. You have to have a as good a read as these other critters are, you know. And mm-hmm. that's watching the water, seeing the water color. All, the, all these are yeah. data points that are coming into your head that make you a better decision maker. That make you able at key moments to break away from that preconceived game plan that you had and flexible and dynamic as a as a fishing guide and as a fisherman. And right. that I think is that the single most important quality to be as a permit fisherman to get over that really if you really want to be good at it right you you have to be flexible yeah you gotta get outside of yourself get over yourself out outside of your own head and just you know start challenging yourself relentlessly challenging yourself to go look just to be better in water you know to be better to 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 always go with the idea that i don't know what's going on you know it's interesting in the early years of fishing with harry harry when he was just getting into the game he would never tell his client that he's going to spend the next hour looking at a different spot so to build his repertoire Mm -hmm. he was always looking for a new spot 
that he thought and he'd look at night at maps and stuff said, I'm going to go there tomorrow. The tide's going to switch. And I know it's going to be good over here in two hours, but for this one hour, I'm going to go over here. Do you still do this? Every day. Looking for at different spots? Every day. New spots? Every day. You haven't fished? Every day. Really? How, how often are you successful with new spots? Pretty often. I mean, you've been here for so long. How can you find new spots know, it's, after all these years? Just challenge yourself. They, 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 you start realizing, oh my God. It might be the same bank, but fishing it differently. Sometimes I see Timmy Carlisle sitting in the middle of like some basin. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and I start scratching you're, you're, my head, right? You're, you're scouting. And I'm like, you're, oh, you're stealing spots no, no, from the rest of us. I'm not stealing Timmy's spot, but I got to think, I'm like, you know, here's Timmy and he's sitting in the middle of this like five foot deep area where What's I would it? run over all the time. You know, and then you stop and you're like, well, there's another kind of area or something like this or that. And you start pulling around just randomly, you know, a similar spot. Just, to where yeah, or yes, exactly. I, I, I can't. I mean, if, if there's a fishing guy and I see somebody and it's like, I'm almost I can never go there in my life. You know, right. that's like one of the things, you know, if somebody show, if I happen to. I, in fact, I fear it. I fear seeing somebody in pulling a spot that I've never pulled because you can't go because there I can now. almost never I can never go there. And that's a problem when there are so many boats around now. It is. And so many people fishing. It is. But listen, we all have our own problems. And not, I'm not saying that any everybody right. needs to be like that, whatever. But that's just how I've chosen to try to, you know, try to be. And, right. you know, obviously there's some the great spots that, you know, we found or, or that people know, you know, that's, that's not really what I'm talking about, you know. Right. But I think as, as you get good at guides, like, you know, I watch John O'Hearn's routine or I see, you know, Diego or Dustin or whatever. And I, I know where they're going to go fish. Cause I, you know, we're kind of paying attention to each other and keeping tabs. And I think the good guides rarely have conflict because like, I'm not going to go mess with Dougie's routine. I see where he's going to, I know he's going to go from this spot to another spot. I'm not going to get there first. Right. You know, I'm going to go find my own flow. But, what, but, but the problem with that too, he might be tarp fishing that day. He's not <clears> around. <throat> Why not go to a spot that, no, you're right, but I I mean it's not that it's his spot. I just we kind of pay attention to each other's routines. Right. And if everybody's permit fishing, you know. And you're like, "Oh, you know, I know Diego's going to jump from this because he did it yesterday and I saw where he was cuz I drove by 30 minutes later." So, you know what? I'm going to try to find my own flow. Right. And I think that if you look at really great guides, it's rare that we have conflict because we all have our kind of flow and we're able to kind of maneuver around each other without having this kind of, you know, Oh, ownership, yeah, of, ownership of flats. I think that the really great guides are, are all like that. I right. pay attention to it. I'm sure they do. Yeah, I well. know where certain people like to fish. Yeah, and so I'm going to go to If do I don't like my that guy, routine. I fucking go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been some problems with that in the past. Um, tell me about your film, Satori. I thought that was just outrageously great. You know, your permit film with the classical music. Tell me about producing that. that it was... Um, yeah, I first off, I have to give credit to my uh, partner, my film partner, Dave Tepper, uh, who uh, Dave's just a, an amazing character of a person, scratch golfer. He's just super talented. And we combined for a number of films uh, over the years, uh, you know, High in the Lowlands being one of his signature pieces that I helped him make and Satori being mine. But he deserves as, as much credit in that film as I do. Uh, we both shot it and edited it and you know, put it all together. He did some of the editing. I did some of the editing. I actually edited most of that film in Australia on, on, <laughs> on a family vacation, which I made. Oh, good. I remember, uh, 
making the 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 Beethoven edit part portion of it with the tales to you know Beethoven symphony and presenting that to my Australian family and uh, that was the first time it had been shown and uh, you know everybody kind of liked it and they said oh isn't that cool and whatnot and I I thought it was you know particularly cool but yeah it was just a kind of I guess a culmination of my permit fishing endeavors to you know, try to get good at this, to try to capture the essence of what this fish is. Beauty. The beauty. I mean, are you a classical music listener? Yeah. I listen to it all. I mean, it's one of the interesting things, you know, um, making these films, I listen to a lot of music and I challenge myself to listen to stuff that I wouldn't normally turn on or to go back into my, you know, I took a college class that had classical music. And so I started digging into that and finding jazz riffs and, you know, went to school in New Orleans, which is a big music scene. And I, my, uh, my college roommate was a jazz musician, uh, was there on scholarship. And so got to meet the Marsalis brothers and some other, you know, amazing experiences that I had in college around music. So I have a, an eclectic and diverse music taste. And I think that's been helpful in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in these films. And I think, you know, that that particular one might might mark as one of my you know signature efforts. That- it's uh, it's unbelievable. So the, anybody who's listening, go to YouTube and and check out World Angling Satori. It's a uh, it's edited to Beethoven and all these permit tailing and on the flats and it is just breathtakingly great. It, Thank it's you. It's just absolutely awesome. And then you go to tarpon season you got hendrix and some of the old school you know, yeah, yeah. rock and roll well that was the inspiration for me i listen i grew up john o'hearn had a uh had an old vhs copy of that tarpon film before anybody even knew it existed he had somehow swindled and pirated this thing but it was missing parts of it because it was you know it would like skip so we didn't have the whole movie but we used to sit around and in the early days when we were just starting guiding at the saltwater angler and drew Delashmit and sandy and uh, anyway a good group of us we'd have a few too many beers and we'd look at this and just i watched it hundreds of times <laughs> in john o'hearn's trailer you know when he lived on stock island with erica before kids and all the rest of that stuff and uh it was a huge inspiration to me you know and i just wanted to do our our generation's you know version, version. i'm not it wasn't nearly i wasn't i'm not the filmmaker that 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 Krishna Dasso and Gita Labaldine. I had a lot to learn about that, but right. I just want to make a hype video that <clears throat> showcased Tarpon and, season. you know, kind of paralleled it a little bit of, of, of some of the cool elements of that. And, but my starting point was like, I just want to do it to Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> but that was a Christmas gift. I, I, uh, I, uh, I made that first film as a Christmas gift to my clients. And it was just, uh, hey, thanks for fishing with me. Here's all of you guys wrapped into a hype video. And, you know, let me know what dates you want to fish next year. And it worked. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that helped fill out the, the schedule pretty quick, man. Once that Chumming thing got them out, up. There, yeah, it, was a, it was a power chumming. You see a big maneuver. old tarp and jump out of the water to Hendrix. It's like, I got to be there. Yeah, right. My, how much do you want me to send you? Yeah, the phone <laughs> yeah. started ringing pretty nonstop after that one. Well, before before we leave, I want to ask you, I, I heard a cool story. I think you were on like the Tom Rosenbauer podcast or whatnot. I heard a cool story about the year that you won the Merkin or the Del Brown I think your dog passed. Yeah, and you took you mm-hmm. took his hair and you tied your crab flies with his with with his hair, and I think you won that year. I did. I mean, how cool is that? It's it's really cool. I think each one of the the permit victories uh, are special. Um, perhaps no more so than the first one. Uh, 
fished with this guy named Mike Allen, who uh, we had a lot of fishing together. And uh, Mike had perhaps some demons, uh, as did I uh, at that time in our lives. But we uh, were able to overcome and, and uh, you know, ha- develop this relationship together that it was a struggle for us to get on top that first time. But uh, that that's one of the, the best ones I you know, I've maybe had a little falling out with Mike over the years, but I, I reflect back on those years that we dedicated ourselves to this, like really dedicated ourselves. And I read, you know, the article about you and Tim Hoover, and that was just like my Bible. And I went to work on on permit fishing with the same kind of attention to detail and focus. And and I did it with Mike, and that, that was an amazing one. Uh, and then, you know, following that, I, I, I kind of stepped away from the tournaments for a lot of years and said, I'm, you know, I'm done. And, uh, <clears throat> for one happenstance or another, got back involved, you know, in the Merkin again. And, uh, you know, came back with Mike Dawes, who I really didn't know, but is just one of the world's best guys. You know, he's a fantastic fisherman, a father like myself. So we've, you know, met, had a lot in common and we just decided we're going to do this athletic event, you know, do the, do the Merkin and take it like athletes. So he's, training on a mountain bike i'm running and doing you know push-ups and all all sure. that all that kind of stuff to get involved and we we won the merkin uh that year and then uh came back and uh, i think it was the following year or something we missed a, a merc a dell brown together but i had never won the dell i'd come really close and justin had kicked my ass a number of times and respect to justin he's one of the world's best permit guides you know that guy's on point especially in that week in the dell brown uh, and I had lost, like you said earlier in the year, I'd lost my dog, Heidi, who was my, just, she was awesome. And uh, I needed something extra, some, you know, soulful thing. And yeah, I took, uh, I took Heidi Bug's hair uh, and no, nobody loved my dog more than Bob Paulson, actually, because <laughs> Heidi was always out on the street. She was like a neighborhood social dog. And I used to see Bobby come down the street with his boat at the end of the day. And he'd be parked out in front of my house, you know, and the dog would be there. Petting his dear dog. He just, yeah, he, he took it harder perhaps than as hard as I did. I got, you know, Bob would call me crying about my own dog, you know. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. He's such a great guy. And yes. um, he, he just, that guy probably taught me more about fishing. And, and inspired me in my own life more than any other probably more than any other guide or any other person really yeah i mean we butted heads a lot in the marquesas in the early days but i learned my etiquette from him and my work ethic and and uh i just respect the crap out of that guy he's he uh he inspired me and taught me more than he'll ever know well you know he's and, gonna appreciate hearing that well he's just a remarkable human he being. is he absolutely 100 percent. and i you know was a you know i was a you know, run around with my hair on fire as an early kid. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go right to the top and challenge this whole, you in know, your face. Yeah. In your face kind of fisherman. And, you know, I, I've grown up a little bit since then, <laughs> but poor Bobby was the target, <laughs> but I, I couldn't have picked a better target. You and know, he forg- could, he's forgiven. I don't know if he's years. forgiven me or not. I hope maybe if I kick enough cruise ship ass one day, he'll, he'll forgive me. <laughs> no, I'm sure I think yes, I see yes. him a, a lot and, and I have the utmost respect, but I, you know, he was a mentor to me, maybe in an adversarial relationship early on, but uh, I've, I've learned more from that man. Uh, than probably anybody else. But to finish the story, right. you know, this dog was amazing. Heidi, uh, she's buried in my yard over there. And yeah, we channeled something extra and, you know, tied that. So I think you need that. If you really want to win in these tournaments, sometimes that passion and that emotion and getting fired up 
uh, helps. And I think, you know, that was the little spark that I put into every single fly and we were just not going to be denied in that tournament. I think we, we left the dock on day one and there was this torrential downpour. And I remember, you know, everybody went their different direction. Dustin ran, he was fishing that tournament. He ran one direction and John O'Hearn went the other and everybody's going around. I just stopped in the middle of it and just watched. And I was like, you know, the game plan that I had is now shit. It's gone. Right. <laughs> you know, um, everybody's running to their game plan. I'm like, I, I need to completely rethink everything. And we just sat there for 20 minutes and uh, a little crack of sunshine opened up on this one particular area. So I ran over to it uh, and made three pushes of the push pull, saw a spike. Mike made about a 90 foot back cast and hooked the fish. And we had the first fish in the boat within 40 minutes. Wow. And I was like, this is it. It's, it's over. It's happening. Running up the score, baby. And we, that's what happened. We just just started piling on fish. So, and then, you know, then I got a chance to fish with sand flea on the last one. I'll, I'll tell this. And this is, as I love that there's so many great people in fishing, Andy, you know, you meet all these amazing people and characters over the years. It's one of the most special things for me, the people that you meet and the, the tournaments particularly. So I think it bonds people in a way that's special. And anyway, Mike couldn't make it, my angler, uh, Mike Dawes. So he put his best friend, Sandfly, who's this, you know, amazing character. You should probably do a, a, a podcast with him at some point. They, um, Sandfly sounds like something I'd catch a popman over. Right. He's, he's an amazing guy <laughs> down in, uh, down in Holbosch, Mexico. Huh. And he fishes. He's a guide for, down there. He's a right? guide. He yep. basically is the mayor, the educator, the, you know, he runs the whole thing down in Holbosch. He's the, you know, the kind of central figure in this tiny fishing village there. And he fishes baby tarpon, snook and whatnot, but he's a really special human being. Uh, had a bout with scarlet fever when he was a kid. So he's got a very, very delicate heart. You know, he can't, he, he has real heart issues. I think he's had, you know, multiple bypasses, even a, a heart transplant. So anyway, just a very special person that Mike, who's very good friends with Mike. And Mike said it's Sandfleet's lifelong wish to come and fish, get a shot, you know, at winning a major permit tournament. So I'd like to, you know, off, offer him to the opportunity. I said, absolutely, let's do it. And I had never met Sandfleet. And he showed up here. I picked him up from the, from the airport. And when you, sometimes you just know, when you see people, you're like, oh man, this, this guy's you know, special and We're this is, work. this is going to work. And, and whatever, we went out there and we just had an, an absolutely unbelievable tournament together. And, uh, he, you know, he's just a very religious man. So he's, you know, if God's willing, will, if God's willing. And like, <laughs> I started off with like, you know, a little bit of faith, but by the end, I'm like, you know, fully on board, embracing you know, it, doing the cross, <laughs> everything. buying a gold cross, yeah, buying a gold cross. All of that stuff was just, uh, it, it was, it was a uh, wonderful. And I, I think about, um, cause I, at some point I managed to pick up some Spanish along the way. So it's interesting. We, I guided Sanfleet most of that tournament in Spanish. Wow. Calling the shots in, in Spanish instead of English to, to win that tournament. Oh, so cool. yeah, it was, it's each one of these things has a little, a little nuance and a little special one. And uh, I'm fishing with a client now, Evan Carruthers, uh, in some of these tournaments and he's getting dangerously close. He's going to do it. And, uh, I, that'll be really cool. Cause that'll be, you know, four different anglers, right. That I've guided to five if, tournaments. Yeah. Five. If I get one with Evan and I, I feel confident that we will, he's a wonderful human being, uh, has all the focus and everything. And I, I we're itching real, getting real close on it. And I how, look forward to it. How important is tournament winning? Not that important. You, if you make it important. I, I mean, think is, it's it, a great, is it, is it a confirmation of how great you are as a guide? I, yeah, for sure. of course it is. Um, there's no doubt. I mean, if you win one of these tournaments, you did something extraordinary. 
Um, if you win a bunch of them, sure, you did some, you did, you did it extraordinary a couple of times, but it doesn't really mean that you're the best guide. I don't, I don't hold those tournaments up and say, right. oh, the best guides are defined you're by the best guy, the best name. It's a team effort whatever, for that week. Whatever, man. There's guys that you know people don't even know about, and one of them is my really good friend, and he refuses to fish tournaments, and he's the best permit guide there is down here. Simon you know, Becker, Bill, Bill Howes. Bill Howe is one of the most extraordinary permit fishermen and fishermen on the planet. And he just won't go near it. Doesn't have any time for it. Won't do it. But a day on the water with Bill is like, you're going to learn something. This guy's extraordinary. And so in any event, I don't think it has anything to do with who's the best or anything. Uh, I think it's, if you choose to prioritize it and you find success, it can build confidence. Uh, It certainly has with me. I, I I look at it as an opportunity to challenge myself, you know, to eat right, you know, exercise, get mentally prepared, just be the best version of myself that I can be. Uh, and that's that process that we go to to prepare and then fish during a tournament. It's more about that process. And if you do that really well and challenge yourself, I think the results follow. Um, so it's more about process than outcome for me i think too in the long run it helps give you it helps it help help it help gives gives your voice what am i what am i thinking of i mean it helps gravitas reconfirm that your voice and what you're trying to promote and sell has has substance maybe i mean look at steve huff okay he is just such a class act. He's, I call him the God of guides. He won the gold cup. He won all those, those bonefish tournaments that put him on the board, but he had to back it up with his ethics and how he represents himself as a person. But I think initially, you know, when you start winning big, you have an audience because if you don't have that audience, it's hard to get your voice spread. You know, you'll have an audience in a small area, you know, this Marina, or over there, been, but when you, you do what you've done here in Key West with the success of how you've caught these tarpon and, and the relationship with your anglers, and now you've won all these tournaments and you've got all these films, and now you have a voice to go to the referendum and change the dynamics of Key West and the commercialization with these cruise ships, I think it helps I, in a profound way. I appreciate that uh, immensely, Andy. Um, I'm not looking for, for praise or anything, but I, it's I, the I, truth. I, I appreciate it. And I think that the tournaments do help there. It's street cred, right? Right. When you talk about salty fishermen, if you don't have the street cred, you just get out of the room. Because what happens is now your voice, that name, Will Benson has, has, has huge impact in Key West and Willie Benson has huge impact in this marina in Sugarloaf, but the combination of the two, people know who you are around the world. You know, if they want to go fish Key West, they're going to find whether or not they can fish with Willie Benson. And that and that's huge kudos to you. I, I appreciate it. I, I hope in the future moving forward that, you know, um, my name will be associated not only with the, you know, Sugarloaf and, and, and permit and these fish and whatnot. But I, I hope that we're 
moving into another era of uh, environmental stewardship, uh, conservation, and we can look back at this point and say that there's some t- some some turning that happened, and and we got the courage to figure some things out. And I'm not talking about myself; I'm talking about all of us collectively. Uh, that we can look back and say, you know, when Luke and Alice are fishing, it, that it's better than it was. You know, I hear a lot about the old, the good old days, you know, and and some of those guys and the extraordinary stories, right? I want those to come back. And I, and I want, you know, my legacy to involve being a part of that to, to, to give people, you know, the platforms or to bring people together to, you know, make a difference. And I think we can do that. I feel you know, firmly, uh, that we're going to do that. Uh, and I'm really excited uh, about that, you know, and I, it's not a, about any credit or any of that. I just want to see more fish. Yeah. I hear uh, you. you know, I just, I want to have great days of fishing you know, and, and I'm going to fight, you know, to continue to have that. But that's why I say, I think this is your finest hour. Thank you. Your it, ain't, with it, ain't, it ain't over. I got a lot oh, to do. <laughs> I, I, I get that. But this next chapter is going to be very important. Um, and your legacy is going to be, grow that much more because of this. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I think that there's a lot of other guys that are, are seeing the same kind of thing, you know, and, and uh, you know, hearing your podcast with Dustin, you know, I'm hearing the same kind of things and obviously working with Doug and John and those guys, they all feel the same way. It's not For just sure. me. Maybe yeah, I get it. Maybe I've been the one that's been out in, in public and, and taking that on a little bit more. But you, I really got to tell you that these guys, these other guys that I'm talking about have, have really been uh, some of the, you know, major, you know, effort put in uh, and, and, you know, my credit is a testament or, you know, credit to me is it is a testament to all of us. And For they've, sure. you know, those guys have done extraordinary things and sure. st- all the way back to Steve Huff and these other guys. I mean, we're just, there's a responsibility to carry that on. Right. And right. I challenge the next generation, you know, the other guides, you know, guys that are, you know, thinking about making a life change and coming to the keys, young guys, you know, who might be the future guides here. Uh, you know, you pay attention you know, come here. This there's a responsibility that comes with being a Florida Keys fishing guide, and it has nothing to do with putting up numbers. You know, there's an etiquette here. There's a a work you know etiquette, a work ethic. You know, that like I said, Bobby Paulson. Right. Yeah, I think everybody should have to watch Bob Paulson pull the northeast corner of the Marquesas because you know that's what it's about. You know that that kind of effort. And I think that it, that goes off the water as well. You know, you're a professional. Mm-hmm. You're the, you're, you have a, a, a responsibility to uphold the highest professional standards of any outdoor experience, uh, you know, on the bow of this skiff or on the, on the back of the skiff here. And that comes with some sacrifice off the water to, to give back. Well said. Thank you, Willie. No, thank you guys. So it's awesome. Been to a treat be having at you the tree in the treehouse and house. hanging with you. You're a good man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- thank you guys yeah. so much. And well done on on all of this. It's so exciting what you're doing, Andy and Nikki, with these podcasts. I think it's important work. And I want to commend you on doing a great job and keep it up. And it's exciting stuff, man. Thank you. Well, thank you, Will. Thank you so much. Thanks. The story of David and Goliath lives on across the world, this country, and in Key West. Will Benson has proven that you can take on the Goliaths of the world and win. Will Benson's voice has been heard. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.